God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Our speaker is from coming from Rolling Hills, North New Mexico, speaking at the 51st South Cal Convention in San Diego in 2001. Enjoy Annie D, please. Oops. Hi, everybody. My name is Annie Daniels, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and um, <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee for uh, asking me to speak tonight for the courage, I guess, especially after eating. And um, I am. Um, it really is an honor and a privilege to um, participate in other, with others in the common solution we have here. I, um, it's really great to see a lot of people from my old home group, uh, Bellflower Big Book Group. We were there 10 or 12 years. <laughs> it's great to see a lot of old friends. See, now, if I drank, this would be the time. <laughs> this is uh, exactly the time. Uh, thing is, I wouldn't have this dress on after about 10 minutes. And, <laughs> and I wouldn't be standing down here. I'd be up there. So, like my sponsor says, think it through, girl. <laughs> so, uh... I'd really like to, to welcome the newcomers. I, uh, I think it's wonderful that you're here. I, I think it's a little bit probably scary, too, and overwhelming if this is your first meeting or one of your first meetings, but I just hope you stay while you're here. I, uh, hang in there, Tim. I, um, when I was new, I clearly remember sitting in the front row of the meeting, whatever meeting it was at my home group, wherever that was, I was in a fog for a long time. But I remember clearly sitting there, and I knew I had uh, 20 or 30 stitches through my scalp and uh, two black eyes. Um, I had a weird taste in my mouth for months, and uh, I didn't smell that great. I had on my last pair of jeans, which really belonged to my brother, who was 11 years younger, I had no idea where most of my clothes were. And uh, I was bruised and battered, but I was the happiest I had been in a long, long time. Because uh, for some reason, unbeknownst to, to me, well, through a series of events that I'll soon tell you about, I, I had uh, somehow become willing to do whatever it took. And my battle cry had always been, number one, my case is different, and number two, but you don't understand. You know, it was so terminally unique, and um, that was the story of my life. And um, I went from there to sitting in the front row of that meeting, and I was just so grateful to be sober. And um, I'm still grateful today, and I hope I never forget what that, that was like. Um, I, uh, I got to tell you, I, I was never right. I, um, I come from a really nice family, a, a good uh, alcoholic family, normal, um, nice people. My uh, father is a professor, retired, and he is uh, brilliant, and my mother's quite, quite
quite educated too. We're all college graduates. Go figure that one. I'm a good cheater, but um, uh, we, he's a professor, and, and later in life, my dad decided to go back to school and get uh, his second or third PhD, and, and I also come from a long line of um, ministers and um, very religious, scholarly people, and, and in this church, the way I grew up... Um, it wasn't okay to drink, my dad would say. You know, the scriptures as we see them will show you that as they do at church, it's really not okay to drink. But I have this keen intellectual understanding of it, and I think really it's okay in my case as long as we don't tell anybody. And um, I so understand that. You know, uh, he was protecting his right to drink, and um, he could explain anything away. I have a... My mother uh, grew, as we do, to protect him and, and never, you know, just, well, protected his drinking. Um, our, the alcoholism in my home was like having a huge pink elephant in the middle of, of the living room. Uh, you know, it, you do not talk about it. In fact, you don't talk about anything negative. If you're not talking about it, it doesn't exist. And that's the way it was in my house. Um, I have a older sister who uh, care less about drinking. Um, and my little brother is a was is 11 years younger, like I said before, and he he's not a drinker either. They're they're both kind of brainiacs, and um, uh, then there's me. <laughs> and my first memories of uh, that I have at all really are fear, are surrounded with fear. All I remember is being just fearful of everybody, everything from an early age. And my mother always would say, you know, she just ain't right that one. She's uh, she's a little off. She's uh, I don't know. She's so insecure, but she says, but I just give her a lot of extra love. You know, she intuitively knew to do that. And when they let me off to go to school that first day, I was not just uh, scared, but I, I just can't explain the, the terror. I remember it today, and I, it was all that self-centered fear talks about in the book from an early age. I mean, I had it from the get-go. I needed a, I needed some uh, vodka in that thermos that first uh, year. I, um, I could not. I just knew I looked wrong. I had the wrong thing on. I had the wrong thing in my lunch, and I was terrified. And um, that's just that. Those are my memories. I mean, I had a great childhood, a lot of fun. Um, that uh, we just kept stepping over that elephant at home, and 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 we went along fine. And uh, there was a lot of love in my family. I could not stand that father of mine, though. Uh, I just couldn't understand his uh, his the way he would rationalize things. I just didn't get it. And uh, isn't it funny how you become what you hate sometimes? And I. Um, I didn't really like to drink. I snuck out of windows all the time in high school and, and uh, went out with my friends, and they partied, but I was really afraid of alcohol. After all, look what, it, look what had happened in my home. And, um, but this one time, the, one of my girlfriends called and said, you know, these cute guys from college are, are going to this party, and they've invited us, and they have their own apartment, and, and do you want to go? And I thought, well, yeah, I don't know how old I was, high school, junior high. And uh, so <laughs> we, uh, we went to this party, and for some reason this one night, I decided uh, to go ahead and, and drink. And um, they were serving 151 rum and coke. And um, 
they, they weren't very dark drinks, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so I went ahead and had a couple of stiff ones, drinks that is. And um, uh, I immediately felt at ease. I had a sense of ease and comfort that I tried to, uh, that, that was my goal from then on. I absolutely thought things were wonderful. My um, black and white world turned to technicolor. The fear melted off of me, and um, um, I had the illusion that everything was okay, and I didn't care if it wasn't. Um, it just took away all that uh, alcoholism. <laughs> it took away the, uh, it just, it was my cure. Alcohol had started to do then what, what uh, AA does for me today. I, um, I stuck in it, you know, I just continued to drink at every chance I could like we do and had a great time and went out partying and um, nothing really happened until high school. And then when I was in high school, I uh, was at a girlfriend's house and we were drinking out of her dad's bar. And uh, on the way home in a blackout, I totaled um, the car, my parents' car. And... Um, my dad was unavailable when the police called, but uh, my mother came, and um, it, what this did to the family was they were mortified, absolutely mortified, because what would everybody think? What are the people at church going to think? What are our friends going to think? It was, uh, you know, it was a devastation for the family. I had really, uh, I had really, you know, done the wrong thing, but uh, years went by. I went to college, and and I was sort of glad to get out of the house, and I went to this uh, uh, religious-based university. After all, I had to do what I was, uh, I had to please my parents, and, and my dad taught there, and I got free tuition, and that always helped. And I joined the Christian sororities and did that, and then as soon as those meetings were over, I went right to the dorm room and did a head dive into the closet. And I got my bottle and went out with those friends. And so I, I started drinking. And, and uh, you know, already life was, the drinking was becoming a lot of work back then. I drank uh, whenever I had a chance. I, I don't know how I studied and drank. And, and then I had a couple of jobs in college. And, and the drinking picked up. And, and one of these jobs I had was at a restaurant on Coast Highway. It was a real fancy restaurant. And uh, I was a... Uh, a cocktail waitress. Of course, I told my parents I'm a hostess. And uh, it, it was uh, kind of dim lights in this restaurant. And we had to wear, you know, nice a skirt and heels. And, and and I was a nervous wreck, like always. And one night, the bartender said, hey, Annie, why don't you uh, uh, let me slip you a couple of drinks here? And I thought, oh, okay. So uh, a couple of drinks. And it was like, oh, Look at this place. It's beautiful. <laughs> and look at these customers. They're fantastic. I love this job. You know, it, it changed everything. And um, unfortunately for me, once I seemed like once I did something drinking, I was afraid to ever do it sober again. It was just my deal. And um, I would go in that walk-in refrigerator. We carried a tray, and we had a cup and with our own garnishes, and we had to replenish those. And <laughs> I'd go in that walk-in refrigerator, I don't know how many times, 
I said, God, you sure use a lot of cherries and limes? Oh, yeah, I'm all out. And uh, I'd go in there, and it was lined with with wine, and I'd hold the door closed with my foot, and I'd be in there, you know, down in all the wine, and that walk refrigerator would come out, and it, it just, life was wonderful. I thought this was the greatest job ever. I thought I loved my people, and my I, I had a job during the day, uh, in a little children's clothing store, and in this children's clothing store, that it was a small store in Brentwood. It was uh, owned by a little Jewish family. They took me in like family. I, I eventually, they gave me the keys. I'd worked there in high school, and I was still working there a little bit in college, and boy, I was busy. And um, uh, they, they really trusted me. As soon, sooner or later, they just let me open the store, and, and uh, then I found out, you know, little drink in there was kind of fun too or actually it made everything more pleasant and then I started discovering the cure for the hangover was a little alcohol and I would hide a bottle in the back of the toilet and then I discovered uh, what a big shot I could be if I could steal some of those clothes and sell them in, uh, at, at school and uh, and steal and, and it just uh, things started spiraling I just started uh for no no real reason, stealing and drinking, and I, I still had that job though, and and the drinking just started to get worse. I'd lived my first two years in college in the dormitories. In the second two years, we had we lived in a house on Coast Highway with four girls, and by now I'm hiding a bottle in the back of my trunk of my car and under the bed and in the closet, and um, I discovered a. Uh, you know, the, like I said, the cure for the hangover was a little booze in the morning, and then uh, uh, as soon as classes were over, and I started getting into some trouble and the blackouts, and uh, about uh, somewhere in my senior year of college, one of my, or some of my friends came to me, and, and these were good friends. They're still friends today, and they really cared about me, and they said, uh, Annie, um, we think you have a problem with alcohol. And I was devastated because you don't understand. If you had the family I have, and how dare they say it out loud? You know, this is something you don't talk about. I was just mortified. I, I you know, I was like, if you had the father I have, and if you live the life I have, and I think I my emotions are more deep and sensitive than the normal person. I, blah, 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 I know what they're thinking. Get off the cross, we need the wood. But I, uh, I, uh, my case is different. You know, not once did it occur to me that maybe I should cut back on the drinking. It was, I got to hide this drink and it, I've got to be more careful. And I stood, drifted away a little from them and and I, I thought, I don't know about any of you guys, but I thought I'd never sleep again in my life without drinking. I don't think I went to sleep. I think I passed out. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, some of my buddies smoke that dope. And they say that makes helps them sleep. Well, you know, so I, I bought some of that and um, smoked a joint. And I just could not wait for that to wear off so I could have that, that drink. You know, it just did not work. I was not into it. I needed my drink, my alcohol. And uh, it got close to graduation and, and I was miserable. Um, I knew by now that I something was wrong. Um, but it didn't mean I was going to stop. I just had to find a way to control it and enjoy it better. And uh, 
Uh, I was getting bloated and the hangovers were horrendous. Came time to graduate from college and I went into the PR field and I, I, I had to dress nicely and carry a briefcase and I had to keep this bottle uh, somewhere and I was, it, it just got to be hell because before I had some control, you know, I could keep the bottle in my car, in my closet or under my bed, but you know, I, a skinny little briefcase, I couldn't be with clients and then, you know, the, the thing wouldn't close with a bottle in it and um, it was tough. And uh, one day, one of my good friends <laughs> from college came to me, she says, hey Annie, um, you know, I've always wanted to be a flight attendant. I'm going to go down and apply. And I, this light went on. <gasps> Flight attendant. And I'm like, isn't that that thing that he served drinks on the plane? And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh, yeah, I've wanted to be one, too. Um, so I went down and I applied with her. I thought, God, this is great. I can't do this. That sounds like a party. And so I went down to every airline and filled out my application. And um, it was 1979 during the United Strike. And... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, two weeks later, I got an interview back in the mail, and I thought, well, this is great, so I went down, uh, put on the suit and, and everything, and, and by now, I was more than a daily drinker. I was drinking in the morning a lot, too, but I did the only thing I know how to do. I sat in that AA parking lot in front of that AA interview. <laughs> And drank a bottle of wine. And I went in and I was the only one hired out of the, I don't know how many people. Alcohol worked for me and it worked good. And uh, I was, you know, I thought I was pretty sharp. And then they said, hey, Annie, what we're going to do now is uh, we really need people. We'll do a quick second interview and then we'll send you down to the Charm Farm in Dallas. And I thought, oh, great, you know. Uh, and they said, bring whatever you do. It doesn't. There's no guarantee you're going to get out or you're going to graduate because and then after that you're on probation. But uh, pack all your stuff because we're going to send you directly to your new base. You know, and I'm like a surfer chick from California or had been before I would have drowned. Um, and I... Uh, I packed all my stuff, and I did what I thought was normal. I took a few bottles of booze and hid it between the clothes and went down there and, uh, you know, did all the deal. I, um, the booze was gone in, like, three days. And that was probably the last period of time where I spent any time at all um, sober, and, uh, for, and I was miserable. Sooner or later, though, by the fifth or sixth week in training, I found a bar right off off campus as we do and and uh, somehow I made it through that training and that charm farm and uh, they said okay Annie here we go uh, we're gonna send you to Chicago and I thought oh it's really cold there and there's a lot of Irish people and they love to drink you have to drink a lot to stay warm that's the ticket and off I went and I loved it here I am in a new atmosphere, a new environment with people that didn't know my history. They knew nothing about my little drinky-poo problem. And um, and I was just a good girl that wanted to party, you know. And so uh, we partied. We drank and drank and drank. And, you know, as people will tell you, things were a little different in the airline industry then. And, uh, you know, today we have random drug testing and alcohol testing and uh we don't have anything like that. Then we didn't even go through security, you know. And um, my, it was nothing for my beeper to go off in a bar in downtown Chicago and 
you know, I'm drinking coffee on the plane and trying to sober up and, um, we were a mess. I mean, I just drank and drank and drank and, um, somewhere in the first few months, we, a supervisor came on board and it was, uh, in the morning and by now I'm kind of sick. I've been sick for a while. I was, uh, shaky without the alcohol and, and, uh, uh, I was just drinking like I was going to the electric chair in a half hour all the time. And, um, I, uh, supervisor came on and she says, you know, you're on probation. I'm your supervisor. And, um, what I'm going to do, it was something, it was like six in the morning. She says, I'm going to do a little check ride. It's this thing where they watch every phase of your flight. And, um, I said, okay, great. And I was shaky and I was sick and I was nervous. And I thought, there's no way I can push a cart or serve a drink this morning. There's just no way. I was always terrified without something. So I took the risk, and I went in, and I took a couple miniatures into the lavatory and shot down a couple of bottles of vodka. And I went out, and I was fine. And I passed that. But unfortunately, that same thing happened to me. I never drew another sober breath on the plane. I was afraid to work a flight. Uh, until I finally did get sober from that day on. And, and I'll tell you, that's a, I thought it was hard work before, hiding the booze and pleasing the parents and hiding it from this fiancé, breaking up with him because he didn't know I drank. And, you know, just uh, just a lot of work. But uh, now, I, now I had a, it, the work became even harder. Um, I got where I, I carried this flask that held a little over a quart. It was plastic. And... Um, I, I took it on the trip every day, and, and uh, if it started, I started worrying if I drank too much, it got down too far, and oh my God, I'm not going to have enough for tonight, and then what about in the morning, because I had to drink in the morning, I couldn't even get mascara on, I was just, and um, so uh, I'd go into that lavatory, you know, the other girls would go into the lavatory and say, I'm going to go freshen up my lipstick, and they'd take a little tube in, and I, I'd go to the lavatory with my whole tote bag, I'll be right back. I gotta freshen up, and uh, you know, and I'd come out, and there'd be this big sweat beads on, and the glassy eyes. I feel better. Do I look pretty? And uh, you know, and I, I was getting that look, you know, the potato body with two sticks, and uh, just uh, it was a mess. And um, and I would, uh, I would be on the layovers, and and I'd look in the mirror, and I'd say. Uh, uh, you know, you're nothing but an alcoholic, and I'd spit at myself in the mirror, and then I'd take another drink, and um, it was just a, a constant thing, and I, uh, I used to write long letters when I was drunk, of course, well, when wasn't I, and I, um, you know, dear God, why do I drink this way, what's the matter with me, and you know, the God I'd grown up with was, I was so scared of. Because uh, as I understood it, I was a failure. I was going to hell, whatever that was, and I'd never meet up to the standards. And uh, But somehow I still believed there was a God. Um, and I'd write these letters. I never once would write, uh, I'd let, help me stop drinking. It was, why do I drink this way? And um, eventually... I, I was starting to, well, I think, wear my welcome out in Chicago. So I decided it was time to transfer back to Los Angeles where everybody's senior, like I am now. And uh, I uh, got, uh, I was based there. I was very junior. 
and uh, the, the drinking continued. But one more time, it was new people, and and you know it was hell. It was a chase, and and I had some crazy behavior, but you know I did still have a lot of fun sometimes. And and I, I it wouldn't be right if I didn't share with you some of the crazy stuff uh, that went on. I. Um, I, I remember this when I first got to Los Angeles. Of course, I hooked up with the drinkers. And um, this one party, there was about eight of us because it was a DC-10. And we did this all night. And we started in L.A., went to somewhere like Oklahoma City, and then on to um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We landed in Detroit and drove to Ann Arbor for like a 36-hour layover. Well, we were we started drinking, you know, from the get go, and some of them had drugs, and um, the the normal ones would wait till we got there. I don't know how, but um, after doing this trip for like a month or so, it was really exhausting. It was you sleep deprived, but um, the crew members we all knew each other, and they said, you know, we're going to this college town. What we ought to do is all bring our roller skates, and we can roller skate around the campus. And I said, well, that sounds exhausting is what I thought. But I said, well, that sounds great. But I, I don't have roller skates. I, I never did. I, I do have a unicycle from when I was a kid. I kind of, and, you know, when I was a kid, I rode it. And they said, oh, my God, bring it. And I said, there is no way. And um, they said those three words that always did it for me. Uh, we dare you. So... <laughs> Honest to God, the next trip, here we are. The girls carrying their roller skates, some in their suitcase. I'm rolling the suitcase and rolling the unicycle in front of me onto the DC-10. So I thought, well, okay. So I, I put it in the back of the DC-10 and rolled it into a little closet there. Um, about halfway through the flight, the captain calls back. The captain who is sober today, by the way. And... Uh, he says, uh, in those days, we didn't get paid unless the captain turned in our pay sheet. Everything was, nothing was computerized. They had to initial everything. And he says, hey, Annie, this is Bob or whoever. He says, uh, I'm not going to turn in your pay sheet unless you deliver your next tray of drinks right in there. Unicycle down the aisle. <laughs> I said, there's no way. And what did he say? I dare you. And I said, oh, Okay. So I got it out, and, you know, I thought no, I thought everybody wanted to party. I was riding the unicycle up down all, delivering drinks. And I, honest to God, I, uh, that was normal. And, you know, God forbid somebody wants to take a nap on the flight, because I'm having a party. And, uh, you know, I was telling this story, and some years later, uh, after I got sober, another flight attendant and I were participating in, in an event where we both were like 10 minute speakers and I briefly told something about the unicycle and my friend Pam, who was sober alcoholic, got up afterwards and she goes, you know, Annie doesn't even remember this. She says, but I was on her flight. I was the purser. She says, uh, and I cringed, of course. She said, not only did she ride that unicycle, but she said that I had these flash, these red glasses with bulbs around them that flashed. <laughs> and uh, a little rope that went to my apron. And, um, and so it was true, you know. It was confirmed. Um, 
I, uh, you know, it was nothing for me to, uh, one of my girlfriends on the 747 to roll up a closet door and I'd be passed out on some fur coats, you know. I'm tired. And, uh... I'll never forget the time I was uh, on the 747 we had. We used to have a uh, tray cart, entree cart, beverage cart. And I would do the trays because it didn't matter if you're shaking or whatever. You're just down and up, down and up. Oh, I was so tired. Down and I'd go down and I went down to get a tray and the two girls behind her like, she didn't come up. <laughs> Of the girls. Hey, what's up? They're pushing a cart, and you know, I've, oh, I'm stuck. And I was in there, and my hair was stuck in one of the metal bars in there. And they had to climb over the seat and cut my hair. And I passed out for a while. And, uh, you know, I just, it was, yeah, whoa. But, uh, and it's, it's real funny and everything, but my drinking was getting miserable, and, and so many things occurred. And I would say to myself, something, someday something's going to happen. Some, you're going to get caught. You're going to lose your job. But until that day, I have to drink, and it's worth it. And, uh, and I would just keep drinking. And I was so afraid that I would get caught and I would get fired. And by now, my little self-esteem was tied up. And at least I have this job. At least I'm a flight attendant. You know, I, uh, I, that, that meant something to me. You know, I'm something. I'm somebody if I have that job. And, um, yes, that day did come. And an intervention was done on me by uh, several sober flight attendants who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, they had called my parents, and through a series of events and everything, that I'd become pretty sick. And um, they got my parents, they got my sister, my brother-in-law, and, and a couple good friends, and they all uh, did the center, pulled me out of a neighbor's house where I was busy, and um, <laughs> did an intervention on me, and uh, and I was mortified. I, I was terrible. What are people going to think? You know, it's okay I'm riding a unicycle on the plane, but what will they think if they find out I'm a sober alcoholic, you know, and my little fragile ego, I was, I was mortified, I was terrified, and, and these sober flight attendants, uh, ironically, that's what I'm doing now. I'm trying to give it back, but, uh, and I understand when they're mortified, but they uh, explained to me that my life would only get better. And I'll never forget them saying that. Of course, I didn't believe it at the time, and and that I would not lose my job if I became got involved in the program, became a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could have anything I wanted, and I may not even want that job. And uh, um, so anyway, I went into this program that was run by uh, several, uh, all the people that worked there were sober members of AA and Al-Anon. And um, boy, did I shake it out! I was a real sick puppy and uh, uh, I'll tell you I got out of there and I you know I shed 30 or 40 pounds in bloat and I was I thought it was fabulous this sobriety because I I thought God I have this physical freedom I don't have to constantly worry about the drink I can do things and um, and I you know those meetings they want me to go to you know if you just go a little late and leave a little early you're still doing what you're supposed to do and uh, uh, Besides that, 
There's only one problem. I didn't think I could really push a car to serve a drink with nothing. I, I'm a sober alcoholic, so I don't drink. But I went to the local drug dealer and got never did drugs. Got some uh, street quaaludes, about a hundred of them, just to uh, their Valium because just because I'm nervous and. Uh, I was going to sell most of them. I think I sold two tablets. And, uh, I, you know, this sobriety was fabulous. I was relaxed all the time. I was looking good. And if you saw me at a party, I don't drink, you know. And uh, I uh, I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, I, I did a little of that cocaine because I could drink and drink and drink. And, you know, drinking is my thing. And uh, I start to fade or pass out, do a little of that, and I was back. Now, here I am sober. I'm sober, don't you know? And I'm trying to do a little cocaine and enjoy it. And uh, I don't understand why it's not enjoyable uh, like it was before. Uh, my jaw was killing me. I just feel great about it. I don't know what's wrong with you. Oh, Jesus Christ. I love sobriety. And then pretty soon I thought, you know, I really feel like I'm, I'm coming down with a cold uh, or maybe in the next uh, year or so. So I'm, I better drink seven or eight bottles of NyQuil. And I tell you, I got the worst rash. Oh, so I switched to Listerine. And uh, it really made me sick. And I will never forget after a year or I, I'm not... All the dates and times are vague to me. Going into that liquor store, I remember the space I parked in. I remember what the guy looked like that sold it to me. And I bought that half pint of, of uh, vodka, and I sat in the car and drank it. And it was like magic because I'm an alcoholic, chronic like there's any other kind, and I have no solution. I'm dry, and life is too scary. And um, when I drink that drink, it just gives me goosebumps now to remember but I thought my progression of my disease I'd heard about it I thought I could never get worse I was pretty sick when I got here but I'm here to tell you that progression of this disease is astonishing it'll always get worse as long as I'm breathing and then the next few months I uh, found myself in places and did things that um uh, we're just 100% due to this, to uh, the disease of alcoholism and where the progression of drinking took me. Um, I, I really thought it could never get worse. I had an apartment, but I slept in my uh, van a lot of the time. And um, I ended up uh, in motel rooms uh, in Santa Monica. And uh, uh, just uh, just to let you know, kinds of things. I was raped in a motel room. Um, and in a general, it's, a very, it's vague to me, but I was beat up in an alley by a, uh, uh, what we used to call winos, another alcoholic trying to get his bottle, and I was in my uniform. Um, the kinds of things, uh, the, the places that alcohol will take me, and, and what really terrifies me is uh, I know it'll get worse because I've seen it already. I've done it, and I'm afraid I'd stay alive. And... Um, it was bad, and I still had this one boyfriend, and this boyfriend, uh, he says, you know, I, I know you're drinking. I am not. <laughs> 
but uh, he really cared about me, and he says, here's what we're going to do. I know you, you, need, you think you need hospitalization or whatever, but we're going to put you in the car. We're going to drive to Santa Barbara. We're going to get you a motel and let you shake it out for a few days. And this guy was sober because uh, to, to get him out of my way of drinking, I had uh, already put him through a hospital program, and he had continued to go to AA, stay sober. And um, so I said, great. So we did that. And after three or four uh, days, it's all vague to me. We were driving back. And the uh, last thing I remember, seeing a bunch of dinosaurs crossing the road. And uh, when I woke up, I was in a hospital. I had the first of many, many grand mal seizures trying to come off alcohol myself. Uh, in order to protect himself, this boyfriend hit the road. And uh, my parents moved me into a small uh apartment in West L.A., and um, the whole family was terrified and scared, and, and, um, and by now, I really wanted to get sober. I was scared, and I called a couple of people and friends in Santa Monica and in the Palisades and that uh, I had met in that hospital, nurses that worked there, and they'd take me to meetings and spoon-feed me honey and uh, try to keep me from having seizures, and and uh, I'd get a day or two, I'd go back to my apartment, and somehow I would I'd get out, somehow write a check and, and get the booze. And uh, I was so afraid to not drink, and I was so afraid to drink. And uh, uh, I was lost track of what's day or night or eating or, you know, and I don't know how long it really went on this way. Um, I... Uh, I, I did still have my job, though. I, they'd given me every break they, like, you know, they could, and, and there were some people there that really cared about me. And uh, this one night came, and, and my job was still all I had, you know. I, at least I'm a flight attendant, you know. And uh, so this one night, I, you know, I lived in the studio apartment. With, my bed just had three legs on it, and every night I would spray raid around it. There were so many cockroaches. And um, I remember that clearly. And um, I just, it was like a survival thing. Wake up, pass out. Wake up, pass out. And... Uh, every few days get out for uh, booze or something or try to get sober again and um this one day i said you know i'm pretty sure tonight was the night i was supposed to go back to work i was supposed to do a dallas turnaround an all-night thing and uh i was in such a state of uh, insanity at this point um i somehow got in my volkswagen van and uh to show you what kind of insanity i was at, i put this big half gallon of vodka in the seat behind me, behind the seat, in this van. I had, you know, the uniform on all that, and I headed out toward the freeway in West L.A. And next thing I remember, I woke up, and I, I'm in the middle of the street line there, and, and I, I feel all wet, and I realize this is, I'm bleeding all over the place. And I, I was perfectly calm, and I looked over there, the flashing lights and everything, right on Wilshire there, you know, and, and my van was totaled it was across the way and, and things were vague and they came in and out and and uh a lady came up to me and looked down at me and uh, she asked if i was okay i says why do you care she says i'm a nurse i just i care she'd come from ucla right there and then um as clear as if it were uh an hour ago i remember it, I, the, it sound it was like the sound went off and I looked up, and there was this policeman looking down at me. And uh, 
I uh, looked up at him and I finally said words I'd never said before in my life. I said, I'm an alcoholic, I can't stop drinking, and I need help. And he said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I had gone head on to a car, I guess, and totaled it. I haven't had a drink since that day, but he took me uh, to, to UCLA. Of course, I had no car. I told them there that I might have seizures, so they took care of me long enough to get past that. And a nurse gave me a ride to my studio apartment. And I don't care how big my surrender is. I'm now in my apartment alone, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe there's just a little something in a bottle left around somewhere just to, to ward, ward things off, you know. And I look around there. For once, for the first time since in a long time since I could remember, there wasn't even any perfume or shoe polish or anything, you know, NyQuil. Um, left in that apartment and then the phone rang and it was this uh, f sober flight attendants again they had called they said you know Americans uh, set a precedent they're putting you through a, a, a detox and uh, that's when I went uh, crawling into those meetings in my brother's pants and full of scars and <laughs> stitches and you know I didn't care about that anymore I uh I was so happy to be sober and so afraid it wouldn't last. You know, I before that, I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get sober. I finally asked for help. Um, I uh, really got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I just, I was so, I just remember the terror that, you know, okay, now I've got three days. I'm afraid I won't get one more if I do something wrong or I don't take the action. So I got this sponsor, and anything she said, I did. And um, I was going to meetings in West L.A. and on the West Side, and, and <laughs> I, uh, I followed her direction. I worked through the steps. You know, I had to do that stuff that I was terrified of. I had to uh, make amends to those that clothing store and, and pay those people back for the stuff I'd stolen, much less tell them about it. You know, and I had to tell people the truth, and that was very difficult for me. I'm one of those people. Even my mother said from the, an early age I was like a chronic liar. You know, if I'd done something twice, I just said three times and look you right in the eye. And, um, you know, I had to start telling the truth and uh, making those amends and paying that money back. And, and my sister and I hated each other. And uh, I called her and made amends, and I had stolen some of her furniture and, and had to pay her back for that. But uh, I went out to see her, and she lived in New Mexico. And she showed me the area, and I fell in love with it. And eventually we moved there just three years ago. But um, I, uh, I, it's important for me to tell you that as, uh, as much of a surrender as I had, as willing as I was, um, it took me four years into sobriety to admit that somewhere in the first couple months I'd done a couple lines of cocaine. And I held on to that secret. When I did my inventory, that was the part where she said, any secrets? And I put it all down. But I was, I, I was going to somehow not, not slip that out after all. It was just somewhere in the first couple months. And after about four years, uh, I knew I was going to get drunk if I didn't let that go. See, I got a big ego, and I know every one of you in this room is concentrating on the exact date of my sobriety, which is, by the way, <laughs> which is, by the way, November 28th, 1983. I, um, 
my original date was September 28th, so we moved it. That was devastating. You know, I just, uh, it, it was important for me to do that. I had to be clear of that. Um, I, uh, I just started experiencing a, a new freedom. Um, Roger and I started running marathons. Um, first of all, I met Roger in the first uh, six months. <laughs> And, um, but we waited a long time to get married. We really did. I was two and he was four. And, um, you know, I, we had so much sobriety. But, uh, you know, we'll be married to coming up on 17 years, I think. And we've had a, a great life. Um, I, I fell in love with Roger because um, he loved Alcoholics Anonymous as much as I did. And, you know, I was the poor guy. Every time we'd go on a date, I was like, can we go to a meeting? He was like, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, we've, we've just had such a great life. Um, I, uh, so much has happened. Um, you know, things went along great, and, and um, I was, five or six years ago, I was at a meeting, and talking, giving my little story. It was a small meeting, and, and I don't, I'm not this big-time speaker, so, but it was, a, I had to speak twice that month between flying, and, you know, I, by the way, I still fly. It's been 24 years, but I, um, you know, pays the bills, <laughs> uh, but uh, I got to the part about, it was a beginner's meeting in Hermosa Beach, and I got to the part, a couple of girlfriends were sitting in the front row, I got to the part about the policeman, and, and there was some people chit-chatting back there and in the back of my head I'm thinking Jesus Christ I come all this way I'm into to the, the dramatic moment and they're ruining it for me <laughs> you know of course what I said was just continued the story you know it's all about me you know it's always all been, been about me and um, uh, after the meeting the line formed they came up to thank me and I, I looked up and there's this face with tears coming down and uh, this guy says, hi, my name's John. I'm your policeman. And um, he had been looking for me, too, for the last, uh, since I got sober. I, you know, it's, uh, like I said, I've always exaggerated and, and lied. And, and so in telling stories, I always kind of want to check with people to make sure I haven't built it up, you know. I think, because, you know, a little more sounds a little better. And so I'm going, I'm asking John, okay, is it, 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 did it happen like I told it? He said, exactly. He said, what's weird about it is he's had like 10,000 accidents. And um, he remembers every detail of that accident, the direction the gurney was facing in the hospital. And, you know, he didn't uh, arrest me. He took me to the hospital. And he said, honey, you were <laughs> not looking good. You were quite the beaut, you know, <laughs> puffy old, puffy old drunk. And um, he said, but he just had a feeling about that. And uh, I'm glad he had that feeling. <laughs> Um, but uh, he came to Bellflower Big Book and gave me my cake that year. That was quite an honor. Um, just uh, four or five years ago, uh, as life happens, Roger came down with some rare autoimmune disease. And, uh, uh, you know, it took forever for us to find out what was going on with him. He'd be on steroids and then chemo. I mean, he was circling the drain, believe me. And... Um, <laughs>
um, you know, this program, it's, it's been so unbelievable in life. This is my family. You know, this is, this is where I get my love. This is where I get my support. Uh, everybody showed up. Uh, people were there for us day and night. I had one girl uh, that I sponsored come to the hospital with me one day when I'd called 911, and, and I says, what are you doing here? you got to work. She goes, no, I called in sick. And I says, I don't need anybody here with me. She says, yes, you do. And the next day she says, and tomorrow Kim's coming. She called in sick. And, uh, you know, just things like that and the meetings people brought to the house. And uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, my sponsor was a wonderful lady, and she gave a lot of support uh, always. And she taught me about being of service. She, you know, that was the biggest, the biggest deal for me in sobriety was conquering my fear. I remember when I was new, and uh, I, it was time for me to go back to work. I was out of the hospital. I'd been to a lot of meetings. It'd been only about a month, but I, and she said, "You get your work." And I said, "Okay." And. Uh, I said, but, you know, you don't understand. When I get there and I go to push that cart and serve those drinks, I get start shaking. I get so nervous. And this isn't sobriety. I'm scared to death to talk to anybody. I couldn't even drive anymore, for God's sake, sober. I says, my neck gets red. What do I do? And she says, do it anyway. Who cares? <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? And, I mean, that was like, oh, you know, it's the simple things around here that have taught me the most. I said, but you don't get it. I'm like almost going to pass out. She says, so you pass out. And, uh, you know, she just always said to me, uh, 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 God's the answer. Now, what was that question? Uh, oh, and, uh, and I'd start blah, 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 but you don't understand. God's the answer. Now, what's the question? And um, I don't know how many days I spent in the laboratory on my knees, those pantyhose I went through. Uh, she just told me to say the third step prayer. And I, I've one step at a time, one thing at a time, I learned to do things sober that I'd never done uh, sober. That's a big deal for a drunk like me. Um, I... Uh, so I was, Roger was in the hospital, and I called my, my sponsor died when he was in the hospital. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And um, somebody else came into my life. She lives in Indiana, but Norma's been wonderful, loving support, uh, unbelievable. Um, so we moved to New Mexico. You know, he was uh, still sick, but... He was doing better, and we moved because that was our dream. That was the deal. It was beautiful. My sponsor once told me, if when, you, when you see a place, when you go to a place where you feel and see God, go there often. So I moved there. And, uh, you know, I, I still, I'm a dinosaur flying out of L.A. still, and, and I have the perfect life. Um, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in, in New Mexico. And um, I, I'll tell you uh briefly that uh, I, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you how 911 has been uh, a big deal in my life or affected my life. I, um, you know, those flights to Boston, flight 77 and 11, I've done over and over over the years. And those people on those planes uh, uh, were friends of mine and a lot of them. I just know that this program... It's so important for me to tell you that uh, because of this program, I've been able to uh, to be of service. 
It was about five days after that happened, and I was flying with a, I had been flying with a sober member of AA um, and a flight attendant friend of mine, and I called her. I says, you know, most of our friends weren't able to fly. They weren't able to go to work, and uh, I says, what are you going to do? And she says, what are you going to do? And I says, I need to go be of service. And she says, so do I. So we went to work. You know, AA has given me my answer. Uh, we went, we got on that plane, and sure enough, there was people on there that had lost family members, and uh, and people had been digging in the rubble, and and there's been people ever since, and um, you know, it's this program. My sponsor always told me what you learn at your meetings, how to be of service, how to participate, and how to work the steps. So we'll, uh, you, you need to learn to take it out there. So I've tried to do that. I've I just got back a few months ago, or last December from Cuba. I was honored to do a, a humanitarian mission over there with Patch Adams. Um, and, you know, I just, as long as I'm being of service, I seem comfortable. Um, even that, this job, you know, it's, it's, some may say I'm a Coke machine, <laughs> but uh, it's the very thing that makes me comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I'm, for a while, I'm not thinking about me, I'm thinking about you. Um, my one sponsor, always said to me, the one, Sam, who passed away, she, she would always say, you know, uh, she knew I had a new concept of God. When I, after the accident with the van and the policeman, uh, for some reason I had a whole new concept of God and I was fortunate enough never have to struggle with it. But she used to say this corny little thing like, uh, you know, God's got a picture of you in his wallet. And, um, so in closing, I just want to read a little thing that a, a friend sent to me. It says, uh, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring. He sends you a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he listens. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your heart. Face it, friend. He's crazy about you. God didn't promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, or sun without rain. But he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah.